Uh, So tonight's Bible reading is taken from Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 to 33, and that can be found on page 18 of the P Bibles. The Lord said, then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, What if only forty are found there? He said, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Daisy. Well, we're going to look at that passage now. Before we do so, allow me to pray, asking asking that God would enable us to understand it. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may see wondrous things in your law. We thank you for your word, Heavenly Father. And there are bits of it that are strange, extraordinary, unexpected, amazing. And I guess all those adjectives could be applied to this passage. As we look at it now, Lord, help us to understand it. And may it challenge us and change us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, we come to the uh, next in our little series on Abraham as we look at this extraordinary passage, Abraham's prayer, in Genesis uh, 18. So do keep the passage open before you. And if I had a key text, it would be uh, that bit in the middle, verse 25, where Abraham says to God, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? If there is one doctrine which most, if not all Christians, would like to dispense with, I suspect, is the doctrine of the final judgment and of heaven and hell. Many of us find it a little bit embarrassing. Maybe we think of the sort of medieval uh, images of the inferno, 
the lake of burning fire. And we think, surely, surely God can't be like that. He's a God of love. Now, I know that I've uh, mentioned from the front before that on a number of occasions, uh, or many occasions, when I've been with people, they've talked about the afterlife, they've talked about hoping to see their loved ones again. But rarely, if ever, has anyone expressed to me a fear of hell. When a loved one dies, it's almost the automatic assumption that if there is a heaven, their loved ones will have gone there, no matter how they've lived or what they have believed. After all, how could a loving God ever reject anyone? The trouble is, once you dispense with the reality of judgment or the Bible's teaching on heaven and hell and the afterlife, there's very little of the Christian gospel left. There's not really anything left to say because it doesn't matter. See, what is the good news we're commanded to tell people and ask them to respond to? That they don't need to listen to God, to follow him, to trust him, because in the end, whoever we are, whatever we've done, everything is going to be okay. You see, that's where it leads us. And there are increasing numbers of people who seem to believe just that, including, dare I say it, many people who would call themselves Christian teachers. So, if they don't mention judgment or hell because they no longer believe in it, what do they talk about? Well, they speak about this world, about changing the world now, because that's all that counts. After all, eternity is quite safe. We're all going to be in heaven, we're all going to be there together, so let's focus on the now. These are the words of a minister who had given up a belief in these fundamental doctrines. He was a minister in London a few years back, but he has since died. And he said this, Christ's model was about never about giving answers, and once you remove the threat of hell, which I don't believe in, and the emphasis on sin, which I think is unhealthy and unchristian. It begs so many questions, that sense is almost unbelievable, isn't it? Once you reduce the necessity for an emphasis on the afterlife, you're not left with much else as hopeful. That's why a vision of this world is so important. It's a very telling phrase, that, isn't it? You're not left with much else that is hopeful. See, if you get rid of all these things, you know, what is hope? What does it mean? Well, the fact is the Bible is adamant that God is just. And because he is just, he is a God who judges. You see, he cannot be just without judging. If God were not to judge, then he would not be just. Now we see that in the Garden of Eden, right at the very beginning of the Bible, where God gives his judgment to Adam and Eve for their disobedience, and he expels them from his presence. We see that in the story of Noah, where God judges the world for his sinfulness, but he saves his faithful people. And we get an extraordinary insight into it here in these words in Genesis 18. Now you remember the story so far. Abraham and Lot, his nephew, have moved into the land of Canaan. Lot has chosen for himself what seems to be the best land for his flocks. But it is very close to Sodom, which was a city notorious for its sinfulness. Now by the time we get to this story, Lot is not simply just living in Sodom. He started outside the city, then he was living in the city. But now he's actually part of its leadership. So if you turn to the beginning of chapter 19, you'll find uh, Lot sitting at the gate of the city. That is where the elders would sit. And whilst Lot is sitting there amongst the elders, Abraham is outside and he looks towards Sodom. And God says this in verse 20. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. In other words, the situation in Sodom has become so dreadful, their behavior so utterly appalling that God is about to take action. 
And what follows is the conversation between God and Abraham about Sodom. In all probability, it was actually very much about not just Sodom, but Lot, Abraham's nephew. Abraham had always taken a, a sort of fatherly interest in Lot's life. Back in Genesis 14, he'd been instrumental in saving Lot, and indeed the whole of the city of Sodom. There's little doubt that it's with Lot in mind that Abraham prays these prayers. And we know that from the words that he uses. If there be 50 righteous, if there be 45 righteous, the word righteous is the same that's used, well in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's the same word that's used in the New Testament when Lot is described as a righteous man. So, so though God is, uh, though Abraham is saying, will you save city because Lot's there? Will you save the people, however simple it is, because Lot and his family live there? In a sense, that's really the reason behind Abraham's prayers. But let's just look. Three things I want to point out. I want you to notice, first of all, this warning of judgment. You see, when, Abra when God says this to Abraham, he is warning Abraham about what is going to come. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is so grievous that I'm going to sit down and see if they've done as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. I want to find out for myself, and then I will take action. It's easy to forget that Sodom had been almost uniquely privileged. They had already witnessed the power and the grace of God in a way that none of the other cities of Canaan had. Back in Genesis 14, that incident I referred to, uh, they had been defeated, amongst other cities, by the four kings from the east. But it was God who had rescued them from slavery, where the other cities had been reduced to rubble. So the people of Sodom had already been rescued by God on one occasion. They'd heard the testimony of Melchizedek. They'd seen the example of Melchizedek and Abraham in their honouring of the true God. They'd had the privilege of Lot, a righteous man living amongst them, though it would seem that his witness had been to a degree compromised. They had all these natural advantages, but they had been utterly ineffective for the city. They were incorrigibly wicked. So much so that God told Abraham the outcry against Sodom was so great, their sin so appalling, that he was going to take a closer look at it. Their sin would not escape God's attention or avoid his judgment. And it's a very important principle that's established here. And that is this, that God sees and hears everything. So he hears the cry against sin and wickedness that continually goes up to him. And we see that all the way through the scriptures. Back in Genesis chapter 4, remember when Cain had murdered his brother Abel? We read this, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Then in the New Testament, James chapter 5, when James is speaking about injustice that's being allowed amongst the believers, and he says this, look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. So again, see the cry against wickedness reaches up to the very throne itself. And you go through the Bible and you'll find on countless occasions exactly that happens. See, the fact is that whilst we may be aware of injustices going on around us, we may be unaware of them, God never is. He always sees, he always hears. Not one wrong has ever gone unnoticed by God. Not one sin has ever failed, as it were, to cry out to him. It's a very sanitary thought, isn't it? You see, all around us, the world today is committing sin, and it thinks it's getting away with it. It thinks it doesn't matter. That if there is a God, he doesn't care. And often we as Christians can think the same thing. We can think our sins don't matter. 
or at least we close our eyes and our ears to what is going on around us. We've ceased to care or be shocked. But the point is it isn't true. You see, God hears every one. He is moved and deeply saddened by each one. And one day there will be a reckoning for each one. I was very struck by these words from one of the commentators on this passage. He wrote this, Can't you hear those cries in your imagination? I think I hear the cry of a child, wretched, hurt and terrified, being beaten by a drunken father. There is another cry, it's the cry of an old man being assaulted by a gang of tough street youths. I hear his painful cry as they beat him around the face and shoulders. There is a cry of a teenage girl being raped in an abandoned car. There's the cry of a wife abandoned by her husband. I hear the cry of sinful pleasures, the raucous cries in thousands of bars that scar the faces of our cities, the cries of prostitutes and those who patronize them, the soft cries of drug addicts, the arrogant cries of those who've been able to defeat their enemies or ruin their competitors. But wait, these are only a fraction of those millions upon millions of cries that are rising every minute of every day from every street, in every city and village of our land. Cries that are all heard by God and felt by God. Must God's judgment not fall on us too and quickly? How shall we escape? How shall we excuse ourselves when the only righteous God comes down to see if what we have done is as bad as the accusation that has reached him? They're telling words, aren't they? Speaking of the reality, the warning of judgment. Well, let me move on to the effective prayer, Abraham's prayer. Verse 22, the men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Or if there are 50 righteous people in the city, will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? It's an extraordinary conversation, really, that takes place. And it develops, and you remember how it goes on. It's as though Abraham's almost bargaining with God. You see, the people of Sodom were absorbed in their sinful pursuits. They were totally unaware that this was going on. If you'd have told them there was somebody outside the city at that moment praying for them, pleading with God on their behalf, they would have laughed at them. They would say, ridiculous, there's no God, He's, he doesn't care about us. But all the time, here is Abraham standing with God on the mountain, interceding for the people of the city. See, I wonder how often Christians have prayed similarly for a world absorbed utterly in its sinfulness and completely unaware of its need for anything. Well, here Abraham prays, and it is a remarkable prayer. It raises a number of issues that we can't deal with, but I just want you to notice three great principles. It's a prayer that speaks of humility. See, Abraham doesn't pry into things that are not his concern. He doesn't claim to know God's will. He doesn't suggest that God should listen to his prayers because of who he, Abraham, is. It's not as though God is under some sort of obligation to hear him. He just prays for the city. I think it's an encouragement for us to pray for the world around us. I don't know how often you pray for the world around you. So often we wonder, what do we pray? What do we pray when we see the sort of sinfulness that our society has come to? When we see that it seems to be that today black is white and white is black, all the things that sort of 30 years ago everyone would have known would have been wrong, now are, 
a sneer at and say, how can you, how can you judge that? And the things that we believe to be right are the things now that are, are criticized and those positions are rendered untenable, it seems, by law. And you think, where have we come to? How far have we moved? Well, this is an encouragement to pray for our world. When we hear of those things, we pray for that world. We know that it's caught up in sin. We know that it couldn't care less if we pray or not. But still, we're encouraged to pray for it, and I hope we do. That's the humility of the prayer. Abraham doesn't know. He doesn't know what the future holds, but he still prays. There's the persistence of the prayer. I mean, it may be read in a few seconds, but I imagine it all took a lot longer. And as Abraham prayed, so he learnt. See, at first glance, it appears, doesn't it, as though Abraham is sort of forcing God's hand. He's sort of wheedling with him. He's uh, bargaining with him. But in fact, it's the reverse, really, that's taking place. You see, it is God who's drawing Abraham on so that he can understand more and more of God's infinite love and mercy. It's not as though God keeps changing his mind. It's as though Abraham is beginning to understand more and more of God's true mind. He learns more of God's mercy, so he's encouraged to ask more of him. Well, it's a, a great encouragement for us not to give up in prayer, isn't it? We're told many times to keep praying and not to give up. Jesus told a parable about praying and not give up, giving up, the parable of the importunate widow, whatever. And we must keep praying for our sinful world. We must keep praying for those people at the moment who are completely oblivious to the claims of Christ. Because who knows if God will not reach them? See, the point that Abraham was learning is that God hates sin far more than we ever do. See, so many of us, we don't feel it anymore. We've ceased to be shocked by what we see around us. God hates sin far more than we do. But equally, he loves the sinners far more than we do. And he's far more merciful than we are. After all, if God didn't love sinners, we would have no place in his kingdom. So we need to remember that, that God hates sin far more than we do, but equally loves sinners much more than we do. And as we believe that, if we see that, then we will persist and carry on praying. Notice uh, the, the persuasiveness of his prayer. Do you notice the ground upon which he prays? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He's saying, God, you're a God of justice. Surely you're going to bring justice in this world. You know that in that city there are a few righteous people. Surely you're not going to wipe them out with all the rest. That wouldn't be fair, would it? You of all people, God, know what justice is. So he's appealing to God's character as he prays. And maybe he's learning of God's character as he prays. Now, the great prayers of the Bible always have as their basis, not our desires, not our needs, not our wants, but the character of God. God, you're just, you're holy, you're unimaginably great, you are powerful. And we appeal to those things because we know, therefore, that this is according to the will and the understanding of God. See, our grounds for expecting God to answer our prayers are not that it would make our lives easier or more comfortable or we would want it, but that God would be honoured through it. Hallowed be your name. That should be at the heart of all our prayers. See, Abraham knows that God is both just and a saviour. And so that on that basis, he pleads Sodom's case, or maybe particularly Lot's case. Because he knows what God is like, and he is learning what God is like. Now, when we pray, that should be our supreme concern. The honour of God's name and the working out of his will. See, when we pray for others to be converted, when we pray for our society to be changed, it's not because it will be good for us, though of course it would be. But it is for his name, for his honour, and his glory. 
Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. We need to remind ourselves that again and again. That's what Abraham was doing. God, you are the great one. You are the just one. Why don't you act in accordance with that justice? And all the time, God was just opening Abraham's eyes to see more and more of what he was really like. So he would answer that prayer. Well, then finally, we come to mercy and judgment. Well, that's really in chapter 19, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The fact is that God didn't spare the city. Instead, his judgment fell upon it. God didn't overlook their sin, but he brought them to judgment. But he did spare Lot and his family. God did right. When he did right, what happened? Lot was spared. Sodom was destroyed. They'd had their chance. Now it was too late. Ever since then, Sodom has been a byword, hasn't it? Both for sinfulness and for an example of God's judgment. And you see what you get here is just a picture of what it will be at the end of time. See, God in his mercy for now stays his hand of judgment for the sake of the righteous. He longs that people should turn to him, even now, to be saved. He gives them another chance. He'd given Sodom these chances, but they hadn't taken them. But now, you see, he gives the world a chance to turn back to him. Even now, he has stayed his hand of judgment in order to be merciful. But it won't always be like this. There will be a day when it's too late. There was a day when it was too late for Sodom. There will be a day when it's too late for our world. You see, that's why belief in the judgment is so fundamentally important. Because it is, in the end, the God of all this world doing right. God bringing justice to our world. It will be a wonderful thing, but it will be an awful thing too. This is just a little tiny glimpse into what it will be at the end of time. See, I wonder if the world has any idea of what it's heading to, and the answer is no, it doesn't. I wonder if the world realizes how much it owes to Christians who pray for it. I suspect no again, it doesn't. I suspect it just carries on happily in its own sinfulness, thinking it won't matter. Well, of course it will. And one day every mouth will be stopped. Every eye will see God's greatness and God's judgment. Can I finish with these words from another commentator? The modern world has had the witness of the Christian gospel for a long time, but mankind has rejected it and is descending into a morass of corruption and wickedness even greater than that of the pagan world before Christ. He has assured mankind through his word that they will soon be coming to judgment. Until then, his people have the responsibility of intercessory prayer for lost men and of a consistent spiritual witness to them, warning them of the wrath to come. Well, let's pray that we will be faithful in fulfilling that ministry. Let's pray now, and then we'll sing our final song together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are solemn words. It's a very solemn passage. And yet it's true. And we want to echo the words of Abraham. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? We know that you will, and that you do what is right. And we pray that you'd help us to be ready for that great day when the books will be opened. And we pray that we'd able to hold, enable us to hold out to the world that warning about the future, but also that, that wonderful promise of mercy 
that is always available to those who turn to Christ. Help us to hold out that offer, we pray, so that people might turn to you before it is too late. Give us that grace, that urgency, we pray. Help us to be, in a sense, as saddened by sin as you are, but also, also to have the love for sinners that you do. And we ask it for your namesake. Amen.